Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season 7 of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson, that are currently taking place at the same time on the same floor of the Clara Shortridge Fultz Criminal Courts Building in downtown Los Angeles. Two times per week, on Mondays and Thursdays, you will hear new episodes with reports from journalists who are in the courtrooms as these trials are happening. On today's installment, we hear the latest on witness testimony from our correspondents who are inside the courtroom for both these trials. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We begin today's installment with Brittany Bookbinder and her look at witness questioning in the Los Angeles trial of Danny Masterson. On the morning of Friday, November 4th, the prosecution in the trial of Danny Masterson called their first expert witness, Mindy Mechanic, a clinical and forensic psychologist who specializes in the behavior of trauma survivors. Much of Mechanic's testimony appeared to be the most relevant to Jane Doe 3, Masterson's ex-girlfriend, although certain areas also applied to Jane Doe 1, the friend of Masterson who went to his house to pick up a set of keys, and Jane Doe 2, the woman who described Masterson's verbal and physical treatment of her as predatory. Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller first sought to show that Mechanic was an unbiased witness. She affirmed that she knew very little about the case, although she stated she doesn't, quote, live under a rock, end quote so she's heard a little about it. Then Mueller moved on to Mechanic's expertise. It appeared that his strategy in presenting this evidence was to explain why the victims in this case acted the way that they did, both at the time of their alleged assaults and in the aftermath of those incidents. Mechanic gave testimony about a concept called counterintuitive victim response to sexual assault, an umbrella term coined by prosecuting attorneys that refers to the way a victim might or should act. Mechanic explained that people tend to think that they can predict how they would react to a traumatic event, but that research has shown that victims of sexual assault sometimes act in ways that are counter to those expectations. She explained that when the offender is someone the victim knows and trusts, the victim will react differently than they would to a stranger. For the most part, when a victim knows the offender, they are unlikely to fight back and more likely to use passive resistance, for instance, saying no. Mechanic then explained that appeasement strategies are strategies a person develops to help survive an abusive situation. She stated that people will, quote, learn to say yes, end quote, because their abuser has established coercive control over them. Mueller then questioned Mechanic about labeling an incident as rape. Although the prosecution's argument appears to be that the victims waited years to report their alleged assaults to law enforcement because of pressures from within the Church of Scientology, it appears that Mueller was also trying to demonstrate another reason for their delayed reporting. 
Mechanic testified that the further away a victim's experience from their concept or script of what they think rape looks like, the harder it becomes to label it a crime. She said, quote, if you label something a misunderstanding rather than a crime, it has implications for what you do going forward, end quote. For instance, a victim might call a therapist, but not report to law enforcement. Victims who are in a long-term relationship with their offender have the hardest time labeling incidents as sexual assault, Mechanic said. Mechanic testified that when victims do report that it's common, contrary to what people might expect, for the small details in a victim statement to change over time. Defense attorney Karen Goldstein then conducted cross-examination. Her main point seemed to be that this body of research does not apply when a sexual encounter is consensual or when a person lies about sexual assault. Mechanic agreed that counterintuitive victim response to sexual assault does not apply in those instances. Regarding the peripheral details that a victim includes in a statement, Mechanic clarified that she would not expect contradictions in the details that a victim gives, but rather that she would expect the degree of detail given in a victim's statement to change over time. Mechanic further explained that there's no way for researchers to establish the veracity of claims of sexual assault and stated that, quote, there's no reason to believe that people have motivation to give a false allegation like they would in a real-life context, end quote. Goldstein then asked about factors that could motivate someone to lie, which seemed to be outside the scope of Mechanic's expertise. Mechanic agreed that people could be motivated by money, revenge, jealousy, or sadness. On redirect, Mechanic clarified that while the phrase counterintuitive victim response to sexual assault was coined by prosecutors, the concepts have existed and have been studied prior to getting that label. Next, the jury heard from Mariah O'Brien, the ex-wife of Giovanni Ribisi and Masterson's former interior designer. Unlike many of the corroborating witnesses that the prosecution has called, O'Brien had interactions with two of the victims in this case. She is a former friend of Jane Doe II, the woman who described Masterson's verbal and physical treatment of her as predatory, and she was contacted by Jane Doe III, Masterson's ex-girlfriend, about her alleged assault. On direct examination, Deputy DA Ariel Anson began by establishing O'Brien's relationship to Jane Doe II. O'Brien indicated that following an injury in 2011 in which she broke her legs in 40 places, O'Brien and Jane Doe II became good friends. Then, following an incident in 2014, they stopped speaking and are no longer friends as a result. The incident in 2014 occurred at O'Brien's house. She had dinner with Jane Doe II, a mutual friend of theirs, and her children. O'Brien indicated that she didn't consider herself to be a member of the Church of Scientology at that point, although she had been at one time. During that dinner, Danny Masterson came up in conversation. Jane Doe II became distraught and angry. O'Brien stated that Jane Doe II may have even stood up from her chair. Jane Doe II blurted out that she had been raped by Masterson. O'Brien recalled that she was shocked and upset that she was speaking that way in front of her children. Jane Doe II then got up and left. After that, she and O'Brien stopped speaking. O'Brien also testified that she met Jane Doe III, Masterson's ex-girlfriend, around 1996. Years later, in November of 2016, O'Brien recounted that she received a text from Jane Doe III, indicating that she had been assaulted by Masterson, and asking O'Brien if she knew anyone who had accused him of rape. In response, O'Brien provided her the name of Jane Doe II. She couldn't recall if she provided Jane Doe II's contact information. The people then called Detective Vargas, the LAPD detective who took over as lead investigator around March of 2017. This was the first of several times that Vargas would take the stand due to scheduling issues. 
It appeared that Mueller's strategy during direct examination was to seal up the holes that the defense had poked in the narratives of various witnesses. For instance, the count of forcible rape that involves Jane Doe III, Masterson's ex-girlfriend, is the November 2001 incident. The defense has pointed out the fact that Jane Doe III did not disclose that incident to her husband Cedric during their initial conversation in 2016, inferring that the incident never took place. When Mueller questioned Detective Vargas about his interview with Cedric, Vargas explained that the interview was focused around that one conversation, during which only the December 2001 unconscious sodomy incident was disclosed. Presumably, this was meant to explain why Cedric did not mention the November incident to police. Toward the end of direct examination, Mueller began a line of questioning that appeared to be aimed at dispelling a key defense argument. The defense has repeatedly brought up concerns that the case has been, quote, cross-contaminated because the victims have spoken with each other. While the defense has not introduced hard evidence that the victims have shared details of their assaults with each other, the inference is that because their narratives share certain similarities, it's possible that conversations that they've had with each other have impacted their memories. Mueller asked a series of questions about particular details that appear in only one of the victim's narratives. For instance, he asked whether Jane Doe III, Masterson's ex-girlfriend, had ever given a statement that a weapon had been used or brandished during her assault, as Jane Doe I has said. Vargas indicated that she did not. By highlighting the differences in their stories, he sought to demonstrate that cross-contamination is not an issue. During cross-examination, Cohen's strategy first appeared to be casting doubt on the detective's investigation. For instance, he asked why Vargas had not recorded all of the interviews, including his interview with Cedric. Vargas did not have an answer other than to say that he chose not to record that brief conversation. Next, it appeared that Cohen sought to discredit the victims by demonstrating how their statements to Detective Vargas in interviews vary from the testimony they gave on the stand. For instance, Cohen asked Vargas whether Jane Doe II had told him that, before she went to Masterson's house, Masterson texted her, quote, If you do not come over here, I am going to come and get you, end quote. Initially, Vargas could not recall. Then, after reviewing a transcript, Vargas testified that he didn't document Jane Doe II making that statement and that she never provided him with those text messages. Cohen's cross-examination of Detective Vargas continued into Tuesday. In a surprising moment, Vargas testified that he believed that the allegation pertaining to Jane Doe III in this case was the unconscious sodomy, not the November 2001 incident of forcible rape. Judge Olmedo instructed the jury that this evidence was being admitted not for the truth of the matter, but for witness credibility. The jury, she said, will receive instructions from the court as to the actual charges in this case. On redirect, Mueller attempted to rehabilitate the credibility of the victims by going back over the statements that had been discussed on cross. For instance, he returned to the issue of whether Masterson had sent a text to Jane Doe II before she went to his house. After providing Detective Vargas with the transcript of that interview, Vargas changed his testimony. In fact, Jane Doe II had said that she received a text from Masterson indicating that if she didn't go over, he would go and get her. Mueller then moved on to Jane Doe III. Vargas indicated that he was familiar with an incident prior to the December 2001 unconscious sodomy, although initially he could not remember the details. After reviewing the transcript, Vargas testified that Jane Doe III indicated that there were multiple occasions where force was used with sex. Vargas recalled one incident where Masterson was, quote, on top of her, naked, she tried to push him away, he hit her and entered her, end quote, presumably referring to the November 2001 incident. Vargas would return to the stand once more, but at this point, he was dismissed. Detective Reyes then returned to the stand. Cohen picked up where he had left off with cross-examination. 
Cohen's strategy, once more, appeared to be to impeach the testimony of the victims by bringing up statements they had made in interviews with Detective Reyes. For instance, Jane Doe 1 testified during the first week of the trial that she had bruising on her arms and hips. Cohen asked Reyes if, during their interview, Jane Doe 1 had said that she had bruising everywhere and that it was, quote, coming through like crazy, end quote. After consulting the transcript, Detective Reyes affirmed that that was what Jane Doe 1 initially told her. On redirect, Mueller's strategy appeared to be, first, to demonstrate that Reyes had not conducted a thorough investigation. He asked whether Reyes had ever tried to ascertain whether Masterson had any registered firearms. She indicated that if she had, it would have been in her report, the implication being that she had not investigated that point. Mueller also sought, once more, to undermine the defense argument that the case has suffered from cross-contamination. He asked, you don't know if there was cross-contamination that would influence anything in this case? She responded, correct. Toward the end of the day, Mueller showed Detective Reyes an email that Jane Doe 3 sent to her in March of 2017 and asked whether she became upset with Jane Doe 3. Reyes indicated that she was disappointed because Jane Doe 3 went to the press with the investigation. Mueller indicated that there was nothing in the email about going to the press and proceeded to ask whether her chief got involved as a result of the email. She said yes. When the jury left the room, Cohen made a record that the inference was that Detective Reyes did something wrong to get taken off the case. The court ruled that they will not get into the internal politics of the investigation. When Detective Reyes returned to the stand on Wednesday morning, Cohen picked up with cross-examination. Again, his strategy appeared to be aimed at casting doubt on the victim's narratives. He asked, for instance, whether Reyes had followed up with anyone at La Poubelle, the restaurant where Jane Doe 3 and Masterson ate on the night of the December 2001 incident, to see if anyone had seen Jane Doe 3 get carried out or dragged out by Masterson. She stated that she had not. Perhaps this was not the answer that Cohen was looking for, as it did more to harm Reyes's credibility as a detective than Jane Doe 3's credibility as a truthful witness. At the end of Cross, Cohen followed the court's earlier ruling and only asked one question about the victim's interaction with the media. He asked, while Reyes was the lead investigator, did she learn that any information from police reports was on a website that was viewable to the general public? Reyes said yes. On redirect, Mueller played three video clips from Detective Reyes's interview with Jane Doe 3 in Austin, Texas. Afterward, Mueller once more tried to demonstrate that Reyes had not completed a thorough interview. He asked whether Reyes had specifically asked Jane Doe 3 if or where Masterson penetrated her on the night of the Paris incident. Reyes indicated that she did not ask. On recross, Cohen pointed out that the words, quote, November incident, end quote, appear on the video, although the word November was never spoken. Cohen asked who added those words to the video. Reyes indicated that she didn't know, but that she obtained the video from the Austin PD. With that, Detective Reyes was finally excused. In our next episode, we'll cover the return of Detective Vargas and the testimony of Jane Doe 4, an alleged victim whose 1996 incidents involving Danny Masterson are not charges in this case. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And now with her review of recent witness testimony in the L.A. trial of Harvey Weinstein, here is Molly Miller. In today's episode, we're covering the compelling testimony of Jane Doe 2, the model and actress who has identified herself publicly as Lauren Young. Young testified previously in Weinstein's New York trial as the equivalent of a prior bad acts witness, but she's a complainant in the current trial in Los Angeles. In previous episodes, we covered the testimony of Jane Doe 1, the Italian model and talk show host, and Jane Doe 3, the celebrity masseuse. Young testified that she first met Weinstein at the Cannes Film Festival in 2010, but the meeting was brief. She next encountered Weinstein at an Oscars dinner party at the Mr. C Hotel in February of 2012, Young told the jury that she didn't interact much with Harvey at the dinner, but she hit it off with a woman named Claudia Salinas. Quote, she was really sweet and nice. She was also a model actress dancer, and she told me she was Miss New Mexico. I told her a lot about myself, that I was interested in writing, that I was working on a script for a movie, end quote. The two connected on social media and posted a few photos together, but Young didn't see Salinas again until the woman reached out a year later in February of 2013. Quote, she contacted me kind of out of the blue and said she would like me to bring my script to a meeting with Harvey, end quote. Young recalled that she was excited about the meeting. She was 23 years old and eager to speak to one of the biggest Hollywood producers about her ideas. DDA Paul Thompson showed the jury the outfit that Young wore that evening, a white lace dress with a slip. Young said that she only wore it on special occasions because she was worried about spilling something on it. Young testified that at the time of Claudia's invitation, she didn't have a completed script to show Weinstein, so she brought a printed copy of her friend's script to give to the producer instead, and planned to speak to him about the movie that she was writing. The meeting took place on February 19, 2013, at the Montage Hotel in Beverly Hills, just one day after Weinstein allegedly raped Jane Doe 1, the Italian talk show host and model. Young's cell records place her in the approximate location of the montage during the time of the meeting, and a parking meter shows that she parked a few blocks away. According to Lauren Young, Claudia Salinas greeted her at the lobby bar where the two got a drink and waited for Weinstein to arrive. Young told the jury that when the mogul showed up, he was distracted by his phone and barely looked at her. She testified that Weinstein wasn't interested in the script that she brought or the movie she was writing. Instead, he tried to convince her to participate in America's Next Top Model, even though Young specifically told him that she didn't want to do reality TV. Young recalled that in the middle of their conversation, Weinstein got up abruptly, saying that he had to get ready to give an award to Quentin Tarantino. He invited Young and Salinas to walk and talk with him. Thompson asked Young if she knew where they were going. Young responded that she thought they were going to a conference room. The witness told the jury that Weinstein led them to an elevator and up to his hotel suite. She followed Weinstein past the living room and the bedroom and walked down a short hallway that Young thought might lead to another sitting area. Instead, Young found herself in a bathroom. 
Young alleges that Claudia Salinas closed the bathroom door, trapping Young inside with Weinstein. Quote, this was a girl that I thought was my new friend. So her giving me this look while she closed the door, I just couldn't believe that she would do that to me, to another girl. Besides, there's a girl code. You don't do that, end quote. Young recalled that Weinstein continued to speak to her as he took off his clothes and got into the shower. Quote, I was disgusted. I had never seen a big guy like that naked. I actually laughed nervously and thought, no, 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 end quote. Young's voice broke as she explained what happened next. Quote, I kept saying no, no, no. He just ignored what I said, end quote. Young testified that before she could leave the bathroom, Weinstein popped out of the shower and blocked her path. He pushed her up against the sink, unzipped the back of her dress, and groped her breasts as he started to masturbate. Quote, I was very numb feeling. I felt like I was outside of my body watching what was happening. I couldn't move. I was frozen. I was so scared. End quote. Young alleges that Weinstein ejaculated on a towel and then left the bathroom. She followed soon after and saw Claudia Salinas standing by the bathroom door. Quote, I saw Claudia Salinas right there. I shot her an evil look. She didn't say anything. She looked at me. She had this evil look like a smirk, like she roped me in on something. End quote. Young testified that after the alleged assault, she left the hotel and returned to her car in shock. She said she sat there for about an hour crying, but decided not to call the police. Quote, I was scared at that point that he might have an in with the cops or was corrupt like that. I knew he had a lot of power. I was really scared, end quote. Young recalled that the following day, she attended a meeting with Barbara Schneeweiss, an executive at the Weinstein Company. Thompson asked why she went to the meeting after the incident. Quote, I was scared to not go to the meeting that they set up out of fear of retaliation, that they would call my agent and say, drop her. I didn't know if not going would be worse, so I went because I was scared. I thought he was gonna be there and I could have maybe told him off. I didn't know if it was best to not go." End quote. According to Young, Claudia Salinas was in the lobby of the office when she arrived. Young testified that she told her, don't fucking talk to me, and that Salinas did not respond. Following the meeting, Young said that Barbara Shaninweiss reached out over email asking for her headshot. Young did not reply. Thompson displayed the full email exchange for the jury in which Janine Weiss reached out two more times and Young never emailed back. At that point in the testimony, Paul Thompson pivoted to the cringe-inducing subject of Weinstein's genitals. The DDA asked Lauren Young to describe what she saw. Quote, It looked like it had been chopped off and sewn back on, like something wasn't right about it. End quote. Additionally, Thompson entered a sketch of Weinstein naked into evidence. Young drew the crude picture for the LAPD. It showed a man with a large belly masturbating. Both parties have already stipulated that Weinstein has had surgery on his genitals and that his testicles have been removed and placed in his thighs. Thompson finished his direct examination, having established a clean narrative about Young's traumatic encounter with Weinstein. Defense attorney Alan Jackson rose for cross-examination on a mission to sow doubt about the details of Young's story. Jackson began his attack by confronting Young with her prior inconsistent statements. The witness originally told investigators that she was assaulted just days after her initial meeting with Claudia Salinas at the Mr. C Hotel, not a year later. Additionally, Young struggled to recall the name of the hotel where the alleged assault took place. Jackson stated, quote, As you told your story the first three times, you had no idea what hotel this even took place at. You didn't even mention the montage, end quote. 
Young responded that she had pushed it out of her memory and that she needed help from the police to remember details about the incident. Jackson responded sharply, quote, when you said help with the details, you mean details like the year it happened and the place that it happened, end quote. The remark earned an objection from the prosecution that was sustained by the judge. Jackson moved on to the topic of Young's attire. He held up her white dress from the evening of the alleged assault and pointed to a delicate button that fastened at the nape of the neck. The defense attorney asked the witness why she didn't mention the button or whether or not Weinstein unfastened it. Young explained that she didn't remember if the button had been fastened at all that evening. Jackson proceeded to inquire if the witness knew about DNA analysis that had been performed on the dress and if she was aware that the tests had come back negative for Weinstein's DNA. Young responded that she was aware of the tests and the results. Next, Jackson addressed inconsistencies in Young's description of the scene, specifically the fact that she initially told of investigators the bathroom door was a sliding door and that it locked from the outside. Jackson confronted the witness with a previous statement in which she described banging on the door and trying to escape. Jackson said, quote, you're describing a full-blown kidnapping, right? End quote. The prosecution objected and the objection was sustained. Young explained that although she wasn't actually locked in the bathroom, she felt as though she was locked inside. Jackson replied, quote, you felt that you were locked in there, but you were not locked in there. You felt that you were being sexually assaulted, but you were not, end quote. Young responded, quote, I was definitely sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, end quote. Jackson returned to the sequence of events in the bathroom. He questioned the witness about Weinstein's outfit, his suit, buttons, shoes, and socks, and asked Young how exactly the producer disrobed. Jackson then removed his suit jacket as an example. The action seemed to disturb the witness. Jackson stopped and tried to joke, quote, I'm just going to take my jacket off. I'm not going to go any further, end quote. Young grimaced and said, quote, please don't, end quote. Following that awkward exchange, Jackson asked why Young didn't call the police after the alleged assault. Young responded, quote, I thought he could have me killed, end quote. The defense attorney then displayed an invitation to the Weinstein Oscar party that Young received a few days after the alleged assault. In response to the email, Young wrote, Yes, I'm attending. Please let me know if I can bring one guest. If not, that's also okay. Young testified that she never actually went to the party and only responded because she was afraid of retaliation. Jackson moved on to Lauren Young's phone records, which showed frequent contact with Claudia Salinas in the days after the alleged assault. The defense attorney questioned why Young continued to speak with Salinas after the woman allegedly trapped her with Weinstein. Young testified that she didn't remember why she spoke to Salinas. Lauren Young was dismissed by the court on Monday, November 7th. She left the witness stand collected and calm, escorted by her attorney, Gloria Allred. In our next episode, we'll cover the testimony of Ombra B, a prior bad acts witness who took part in a sting operation with the NYPD in an attempt to get Harvey Weinstein to admit that he sexually assaulted her. Joining me now to discuss their reports on this week's events on the two sexual assault trials going on in downtown LA right now are Brittany Bookbinder and Molly Miller. Brittany, Molly, thanks for coming. 
Nice to be here, Carrie. Thanks, Carrie. Brittany, I was fascinated by your account of the prosecution's use of Mindy Mechanic's expert testimony about the impact of trauma on behavior in sexual assault cases. Molly told us last week that Barbara Ziv seemed to be very effective for the prosecution in a similar role in the Weinstein trial. What were your impressions of Mechanic on the stand? I thought Mechanic's testimony was very effective as well, in part because Cohen has made such a big deal about how the defense is no longer really making an argument at all about Scientology. And this expert offered information that showed how, even without the influences from Scientology, both in terms of the beliefs that the victims might have held at the time and in terms of pressure they faced not to report to law enforcement, that the victims in this case basically behaved very normally as any victims of sexual assault might act. It's hard to say, of course, exactly how it played to the jury, but it does sometimes seem that when the defense cross-examines victims that the jury kind of appears to be over it. And I don't know if that's just because the days feel long and they're bored or because they take issues with the questions that he asks and the way that he's trying to paint them either as lying or in some cases that they were asking for it, you know, by asking about their drinking habits and that sort of thing. But I certainly think that this testimony helped the jurors understand the fact that the victims have processed their experiences over time and only labeled them as rape in some cases later on, that that doesn't necessarily invalidate the claims that they've made. Molly, what were your impressions of the testimony of Weinstein's Jane Doe too, who has publicly identified herself as actress Lauren Young? Well, in my opinion, her testimony was rock solid. Like Jane Doe 1, Lauren Young's story was especially effective because after the assault, she didn't continue a relationship with Weinstein. And the defense is honestly on pretty shaky ground with this witness because unlike Jane Doe 1, where they have a clean narrative, they're arguing Weinstein never was at her hotel and maybe she wasn't even at the hotel when the assault occurred. With Young, the defense has to acknowledge that she at least met with Weinstein that night. Claudia Salinas testified in New York that the meeting occurred. We have Young's phone records that show her in the area of the montage that night, and we have parking records as well. So the story the defense is presenting is that, yes, the meeting happened, but that Weinstein never ushered Young up to the hotel room and that no assault occurred. But we do know that in the following days, Young was invited to the Weinstein Oscar party, but didn't attend. She met with Barbara Shanine Weiss from the Weinstein Company, but Young never sent Shanine Weiss her headshot, even after the executive followed up twice. And these are major opportunities for an actress. But it seems that Young wanted nothing to do with Weinstein or his company after the alleged assault. And that's a major obstacle for the defense. And what was with that odd moment of Alan Jackson taking his jacket off? What was that all about? Oh, wow. So everything about the defense's demeanor up until this point has felt calculated. Opening statements were punchy and memorable. Their examination of witnesses has been off-putting, but clearly curated to appeal to a few members of the jury. And even their demeanor at sidebar is obviously a performance meant to impact the panelists. But this moment from Jackson was off the cuff, and it was cringe. So the point he was trying to make was that Weinstein was wearing a full suit, and then it takes a long time to take a suit off. 
possibly so long that it begs the question, why didn't Young escape the bathroom as Weinstein disrobed? And to illustrate that point, Jackson meticulously, laboriously takes off his suit jacket, which was clearly part of his plan. But it seems that Jackson felt what we all felt in that precise moment, which was, oh my gosh, please don't strip in front of this witness who has just testified in graphic detail about Weinstein stripping in front of her. It felt in that moment like he was actually reenacting that horrific event in the bathroom. And what Jackson should have said at that point was nothing. But instead, he tried to recover and he tried to joke. He said, I'm just going to take my jacket off. I'm not going any further. And that landed like a lead balloon. And, and Lauren Young responded with disdain. She says, please don't. And so that whole exchange was so awkward. And you could feel the tension roll through the gallery afterwards. It was a big misstep on Jackson's part, and I'm sure the jury felt that as well. Wow. Brittany, the LAPD investigation into the Masterson case does not appear to have been their finest hour. What are your impressions of how the testimony of these detectives and the LAPD actions early in the reporting on this case, how does it impact the jury and which side does it seem to favor? It's difficult to say. I mean, both detectives frequently had answered that they didn't independently recall details from their investigations and then had to consult transcripts. But I do feel that overall, Detective Reyes seemed less prepared to answer questions. Now, to be fair, Vargas's investigation was slightly more recent. And I thought for both detectives, it seemed like there were missteps in the investigation, you know, things that they failed to follow up on or ask witnesses or record. And it comes in the context of some explosive inferences by Leah Remini about the relationship between members of the LAPD and the Church of Scientology. Can you tell us what that's all about? Yes. So Leah Remini posted a long Twitter thread about the disappearance of Shelley Miscavige, who is the wife of David Miscavige, the leader of Scientology, as well as the missing persons report that Remini filed on her behalf. And it's come out that the investigating officer that she spoke with has been involved allegedly with some other suspicious behavior. And the LAPD put out a formal response to Remini's statements. But as Tony Ortega from the underground bunker noted, their response included at least one factual inaccuracy. In addition to getting the date wrong, they're claiming that Shelly Miscavige has been checked on and that she's safe. Tony Ortega followed up with information that she might be alive somewhere in San Bernardino. But as it relates to this case, you know, it takes us back to Voir and the questions the judge asked potential jurors about their knowledge of Scientology and their willingness to judge the testimony of law enforcement the way that they would judge any other witness. Now, it's not unreasonable to assume that police would favor one side in a trial. But I think in this case, because the prosecution has been clear in their position on the Church of Scientology, notwithstanding the information that Leah Remini has put out on Twitter, I don't think there's anything that has happened in this trial that would imply that there was a cover-up or collusion between police and the Church of Scientology as it relates to this investigation. Got it. Molly, before we started recording today, we were discussing the way the prosecution's case has been going in Weinstein, and you recounted a story about a comment made by one of your fellow journalists covering the trial. Would you share that anecdote with our listeners? 
Yeah, of course. So the journalists are this mild-mannered, nerdy bunch. And, you know, we all have a lot of understanding for the difficulties that attorneys face during a trial. However, the fact is that the prosecution's performance has been consistently underwhelming over the past few weeks. And that has started to bubble up in conversation between reporters. But the moment when I think the dam truly broke was one day this past week when DDA Paul Thompson and DDA Marlene Mar- Martinez walked towards the courtroom and, in my opinion, the most legally savvy reporter sighed and said, here comes the dream team. And it resonated because of the sheer exasperation that I think a lot of us are feeling. This is a high-profile trial, one of the biggest this year, and it seems like most people watching are asking the same question, which is, is this the best that the LA District Attorney's Office can do? It's fascinating in the context of our coverage of Durst. John Lewin, Habib Bailey, and Ethan Milius, Eugene Miata, they were an incredibly well-oiled machine. They were so prepared, so methodical. And while by my sense from your respective reports, Reinhold Mueller's team is a bit more buttoned up in the Masterson case, neither of these prosecuting teams seems to have thought their cases through, nor are they as buttoned up as the prosecution on that Durst team. Would you guys concur with that? A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I think we are hungry for some emotion from the prosecution. We want some righteous anger, some indignation on behalf of the victims. And that hasn't presented itself yet. Maybe it will when we get to closing arguments. But like I said, not yet. I think there was one moment this week that Reinhold Mueller really shined when he was questioning Detective Vargas, and he really laid out how the different victims in this case, their stories are different. As the defense has been saying, they're cross-contaminated. And I think he really demonstrated quite effectively that that's not the case. But aside from that, yeah, I'm missing that righteous indignation and anger on behalf of the victims. Yes, I hear you. And certainly Lewin and Balian, in a sort of good cop, bad cop way, both expressed that emotion and indignation. But what's striking me even more is the preparation and the anticipation that that Durst team demonstrated in that trial. They were ready for everything that the defense threw at them. And it just doesn't feel that way in these two cases. I would absolutely agree with that. And I would just add that part of the lack of preparation also seems to be with regard to what they expect their witnesses to testify to. I would have expected there to be more preparation of the witnesses before they got on the stand. Yeah, I think that we're lacking a narrative. Like what Lewin and Balian excelled in was constructing a thorough narrative. And that case spanned, what was it, 30 years? 40 years? And yet they were able to string together a series of events for the jury that made for a compelling narrative. And that's not going on in the Weinstein trial. There's not a whole lot of linking between the different witnesses, not in opening statements and not within examinations. Like I said, maybe we'll see it in closing arguments, but I think that the jury needs to hear the story. I would agree. And I was just thinking how in the Durst case, their narrative was so effective because they established that Durst had a pattern and practice of 
killing witnesses, that it was very clear there was a cause and effect to each action that had happened, and it was all part of his pattern. And in the Masterson trial, it almost feels like the prosecution is being dissuaded from remarking on Masterson's apparent and alleged pattern and practice of assaulting women, because if they were to do that, the defense would fire back that the victims have been cross-contaminated. Well, Brittany, Molly, these reports were fantastic. And thank you again for writing out these trials and for coming back and telling us all about them. Our pleasure, Carrie. Thanks, Carrie. See you next time. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, the trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Join us on our next installment as we hear more from Molly and Brittany about the progress of the prosecution's case in both of these sexual assault trials. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was reported and written by Molly Miller and Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.